Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 13, where we're going to finish up this section. We started last week on striving for heaven now and not later. If you've ever read uh, John Bunyan's uh, work, Pilgrim's Progress, you know that at the beginning of the book, the main character, Christian, is living in the city of destruction. And he comes upon a book, and he starts reading that book, and that book... uh, makes him realize that he is in huge trouble. He is a sinner, he is guilty, and he is going to be swept away and the destruction that will come upon his city. He doesn't want to do. And uh, he goes home and he tries to hide his misery and the agony of his soul. And his wife and children, of course, notice and say, what's wrong? And he says, I've been reading in this book. And this book tells me that I am a sinner, that that judgment is coming, that we're all going to be swept away and I don't know what to do. And the family says, just relax. You're fine. Everything's fine. We're, we're doing fine. There's peace here. We have a great family. And the next day he's out walking in the field and he's agonizing and weeping and crying because the knowledge of his sin and his guilt has become like a huge burden on his back. It's then that he encounters a man named Evangelist who says, why are you weeping? And he says, because I've been reading in this book and I realize that that my sin and my guilt are going to sink me lower than the grave. And Evangelist says, what are you doing standing here? He says, I don't know where to go. So he says, do you see across the field there? Do you see the little wicket gate way out there. And he says, no, he says, do you see a shining light in that direction? He says, yes, he says, go that way. And when you find the the little wicket gate, he says, knock and it will be open to you. Well, Christian just leaves right then. And yet his family sees him leaving and they say, where are you going? And they begin to try to persuade him to come back. Come on, let's not be rash here. You know, don't leave us. Stay here in the city of destruction. And he just doesn't listen to them. And he heads forward. Other people in the city mock at him, make fun of him, verbally persecute him. And finally, at least he's able to persuade two of his friends, obstinate and pliable, to come with him. The problem is, is that the first hint of trial they both turn around and go back he himself then falls into this swamp called the slough of despond almost drowns and if it were not for a man named help to assist him help pulls him out puts him on the straight way again you think oh good he's on his way to the wicket gate and yet he encounters mr worldly wise man who tells him you know if you want to get that burden off your back don't go to the gate go to mr legality he can help you through the law get that burden off your back and so christian deviates from the narrow way finds himself onto a precipice ready to fall into the very fires of hell when evangelist shows up again and says what are you doing here 
and rebukes him firmly and puts him back onto the straight and narrow way. And he finally gets to the gate. He begins to knock. Then the nearby castle, which is owned by Beelzebub, the, the enemy begins to shoot arrows, trying to kill him before he can enter in the gate. And he barely gets in before they shoot and kill him. What Bunyan is picturing here is the very text that we're preaching on. The very text that we are looking at today where Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow way. And when Bunyan mentions the wicked gate, it's not the wicked gate. It's the wicked gate, an old English term used to describe the narrow door or gate a very narrow entryway a lot of times in cities they had very large gates very huge gates that you could open up and big chariots could come through then they would close those and then with a lot of times within the door of the larger gate was then a very small narrow door that one person at a time could enter through that was the wicked gate or if you just had an especially narrow door That also would be the wicked gate. And this is the very thing that Jesus is speaking of in our text. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He is going to die for our sins. He knows that time is short. And he's not making a beeline there, but he is headed in that direction. He keeps saying this over and over as we go through the Gospels. And so he's just going from village to village, town to town, and he's preaching because he wants to see people saved. He wants to see them delivered from the wrath that he knows will come because he's the one bringing it. But he's not having very much success. And the reason he's not having very much success is that he has offended the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are angry with him because he has exposed their religious hypocrisy. He has exposed their false teachings. He has told them that they were children of Satan. And so they have done everything they can to discredit him and have been largely successful. Not only that, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis taught that all Jews got to heaven except for the very worst ones. But the majority were all saved because they were children of Abraham. They were the children of promise. And so they knew they were going to get to heaven. But Jesus keeps warning them that they are going to enter into hell unless they repent and believe in him. This then is a collision of what they've all been convinced of with with what they're now hearing for the first time. And it disturbs them greatly. Because it seems like what Jesus is saying is that he is the only way to heaven. Contrary to what they have believed before. And that all of them are going to perish unless they repent and believe in him. Contrary to what they've always been taught. Beyond these things, they look at Jesus and he isn't all that special looking. He doesn't look all that kingly as isaiah says in isaiah 53 he has no stately form or appearance that we should be impressed with him not only that his followers aren't much either a couple notorious sinners uh, political rabble rouser 
and a bunch of common nobodies. He doesn't have an army. He hasn't overthrown Rome. In their mind, they're picturing all of these texts in the Hebrew scriptures that tell about the Messiah coming back to destroy the Gentile powers and to set up an everlasting kingdom. And they look at Jesus, they look at his followers, and they just can't do it. They just can't commit themselves to this guy. He can do miracles, and that is impressive. But he just doesn't look like the guy we've expected all along. But one thing is coming through Jesus' teaching loud and clear, that in Jesus' estimation, the whole multitude is going to perish in hell and is on their way to hell. This then provokes someone in the crowd to ask a question. And then Jesus answers it. So that is the context of our passage. You can follow along as I read Luke chapter 13, verses 22 and following. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing and teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Well, from this portion of Luke, Jesus gives us five truths about entering into heaven so that we are not deceived in the thinking we are on our way to heaven when in fact we are not and end up in hell. Last week, we looked at an honest question that we should all ask, Lord, are there just a few being saved? Secondly, we looked at a scary answer we should all heed. And that scary answer first is that all of us, without exception, should strive, literally agonize to enter into the narrow door to heaven. And third, the reason is, and this I'm sure shocked them, that many who procrastinate and who do not repent and believe in him and the Messiah will at a later date try to enter in through that narrow door through Jesus Christ and will not be able we considered a couple important implications of this. The first is that only a few will be saved. This is common, uh, uncommon in the world today to think that you actually are going to go to hell. You can go out on the streets. You can talk to people and say, do you think you're going to uh, get to heaven? They go, yeah, I've been a pretty good person. I'm probably going to end up in heaven if they believe in heaven. It's the same thing with the Jews that Jesus is speaking to. They have been taught, yeah, 
you, you, you're going to go to heaven. You're, you're Jewish. You're a descendant of Abraham. Of course, you're going to get in. You're one of the chosen people. Yet this is not what the scriptures teach. Though you might go to a thousand funerals and hear them say the person's in a better place. That's not what the Bible teaches. Those people who live for themselves and not for God do not go to heaven. They are not in a better place. They are not happier after they die. They're in more misery than ever. The question Jesus is asked in verse 23 is, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? So we know his answer is going to address the quantity, the amount of people who get into heaven. Jesus' answer is, you better agonize to get in the door. Because many are going to try at a later date to enter and won't be able to enter. This could hardly be taken as affirming that most will be saved, which would be the case if the door were wide and the way easy. Jesus even makes it explicitly clear in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount in verses 13 and 14 as he preaches to another multitude in a different circumstance at a different time and tells them, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. The word few means just that. It means a small amount or number of a larger quantity. Consider the flood. Out of all the people who lived on earth, eight were delivered. Consider Sodom and Gomorrah, and if you read the text, the cities of the plain. There weren't even ten righteous people. Consider Israel, one nation among all the other Gentile nations of the world chosen by God to receive the promises, to receive the word of God, to receive the Messiah, and only some of them were saved. And we know Paul says in Ephesians 2.11 that the Gentiles were without God and without hope in the world. The Old Testament often describes the number of believers as the remnant or the righteous remnant. The Hebrew word remnant literally means residue. Like if you were to take a bowl, you know, of soup and pour it out and then shake it and turn it back over, that little tiny bit that's left, the residue is the quantity in comparison that will be saved. Finally, we talked about what appears to be a contradiction to salvation by grace as Jesus commands us to strive to enter through the narrow door, saying that if we don't, we will perish. Well, the question is, is if we have to do it, if we have to strive, if we have to enter in, then isn't salvation by works? And since we're going to see this over and over again, we'd stop to try to address this, this apparent contradiction. The scriptures clearly teach in many places that salvation is by grace apart from works. And most Christians who have walked with the Lord very long understand this, that grace is unearned, undeserved favor from God that he gives us that we might be saved. Pretty much every Christian knows that. But what most Christians do not understand is how grace works. Grace is not merely a divine zapping. 
Grace is not merely a magical declaration. Grace comes in the form of various gifts that God gives us that we must employ to gain access into heaven. Yet this is not how most people think of it. As soon as you mention grace and works in the same sentence, you know, the hair on people's neck stands up. Why? Because they think of texts like Romans eleven six, where Paul says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And they go, I see. Or they look, think about Rome or Galatians 5, 4. Where Paul says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Verses like these, plucked out of context, create misunderstandings that if God's grace is involved, works are completely absent. Yet what Paul is talking about in Romans eleven six is that when it comes to God choosing which Jews he will save, it is not on the basis of their works that they are chosen, but by God's grace. Paul in Galatians chapter 5 verse 4 is addressing those who thought they could be justified before God on the basis of works, and he says, of course, that isn't true. You cannot be justified by works. But this does not mean that grace is not even in the proximity of works, Or doesn't produce works in us. When saving grace comes to a person's life, it will cause things to happen. And we were all familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Something you don't earn. Not a result of works in case you didn't catch the other three. That no one would boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You could say it, it doesn't hurt. Good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says something very similar in Titus 2 verses 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared. Instructing us, us, to deny ungodliness, to live righteously and sensibly in the present age. You know, looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who redeemed us for his own possession to be zealous for good works. Grace always produces good works. And there is this concept, this fear of putting the works of man as the means, the ground of our salvation, so much so that we've pitched works altogether and we've denied that grace even creates works in us. And so many Christians are saying, well, I'm saved by grace. I know I don't obey God. I don't read my Bible. I don't share my faith. I don't love the saints. I don't love his people. But I'm saved by grace. No, you're not. 
let's say that I was artistically lousy. We don't even have to say it. I am. (laughs) You know, I have problems with stick people. Okay, so I have a problem. You are a great artist. And you invite me over to your house for dinner and we're dinner. He says, hey, you doing anything later on this night? No, I've got the whole evening free. Let's paint a picture. I don't paint. I, don't, I hardly do stick people. Sit down. So you sit me down in front of your uh, blank canvas and you've got this big palette and these brushes and you say, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to hold your hand. You're going to hold the brush. You're going to listen to me. I don't want you to fight me. I want you to submit to me. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you instruction. I'm going to guide your hand and we're going to paint something. So I say, okay. So you say, okay, take the lid off of here. Put this here. Mix this, these paints in here. Thin this out. Add these colors. Okay, we're going to start putting there. Do these strokes like this. Use this brush like this. And so we're painting. We're painting. We're painting. Late into the night, we're painting. It's like, man, it's looking great, you know? And when we get done, man, it's a masterpiece. You say, take it home. So I take it home and let the paint dry and frame it up and stick it on the wall. People come and go, man, nice painting. Who did that? (laughs) What do I say? See, there's a part of me that wants to say, well, you know, I, I did that. I mean, after all, I held the brush. And um, I was there the whole time. But, you know, really, I'd have to say, you know what? I kind of painted that. But it really, I mean, I, I don't even like to paint. So if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have, you know, done that. I wouldn't have even attempted. And it was your skill, your wisdom, your artistic ability, your assistance that, yes, enabled me to do this. And so really, it's your picture that you painted through me. So I guess it's not all mine, though I did it. Do you see that? That's kind of how it is with the grace of God. Let's say I preach the gospel to you. Now, the gospel itself is one of the great gifts of God, right? Now, if I preach it to you, then you are receiving the grace of God through me, right? The word of God is a gift of his grace. And let's say you go down and you buy a Bible and a lot of people died and worked and printed and stacked and packaged to get that Bible on the shelf so you could pay good money for it. And you know what? You may acquire that book and yet you know that book is a gift of God's grace, though many people were involved in getting it to you, including yourself. Our works, apart from the grace of God do not provide the means of our salvation, ever. But when saving grace comes, works always follow. So when Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow door, he's not affirming that our salvation is by works. 
He is commanding us to enter through the narrow door so that he, by his grace, can save us. Yet even when we're saved, even when we know Christ, just as salvation is by grace, so we grow in godliness or are sanctified by grace. The scriptures teach both. And that is why Paul says things like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Well, you're thinking, well, did you labor, Paul? Yes. Well, then why did you say not I? Well, I labored, but it was God behind the scenes supplying the grace so that I could. So he gets the credit. But yeah, I did it. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he tells the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do we supposed to do it? Or do you do it? Yes. Colossians one twenty nine. For this purpose also I labor striving. Agonizing. According to his power. Which mightily works within me. Saving grace. As well as sanctifying grace. Enables us to do the will of God. And the final analysis If we enter in through the narrow door, we will have entered through the narrow door by the grace of God and only by the grace of God. But this does not eliminate our necessary response because God works through our response to his grace. So Christ is not saying in our text, be your own Messiah, but do everything to enter through me, the Messiah, by grace. So now we come to the third of the five truths found in the text. A fact you should not ignore. Just having explained in verse 24, that only a few will be saved because the door to heaven is narrow. Jesus continues the same figure of speech, but he just adds to it. Look at verse 25. He says, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then you know what? This is so brilliant. You know, I sometimes when you're into certain things, you see different things when you read the Bible. I'm into preaching and teaching. I mean, that's kind of my thing. And so when I see Jesus doing things like this, it just it just amazes me how he's speaking to these Jews and all of a sudden he transports everybody he's speaking to outside the door that must be entered through to get to heaven. He's on one side and they're on the other side and he's letting them see in their mind. They're on the wrong side. He is the head of the household who has control over who comes in through the door. But Jesus now shuts the narrow door so that it is impossible to enter. Now, just imagine in your mind, you know, you standing outside 
a huge castle and there are the giant gates and within the gate there is the little wicket door inside the giant one. And this isn't one of those dingy castles that you see in the movies, you know. This is one made out of like pure white marble, shiny and glistening with elaborate carvings and figures and gold gilded stunning castle with a gold door. And there you are living just outside of this beautiful, huge walled castle, whatever's behind there. The walls seem to go on forever. You're on one side and there is this little doorway to enter into whatever's on the other side. Now, the king of that great castle has sent out a decree into all parts of his land, telling everyone in his kingdom to enter in through the narrow door that they might be reconciled to him, that they might know him, that they might dine in his presence, be his people and be blessed. But hey. Even though you see these decrees posted, have heard them uttered in your little town and village, you've got a family. You've got a business. You've got a home. You can't just leave all of that. You're not going to leave your family. I mean, life is good. The weather's good where you live. You're happy. You're healthy. You've got a great family. You've got great friends. You've got a great community. Besides, this is a time of peace. Peace. And you think to yourself, like most other people in your town and village, listen, if things get rough, if the king sends forth his armies and he's going to start judging people, of course, we're going to run to the gate and we'll enter in and we'll escape. But for right now, we don't see any judgment. Everything looks great. And then one day, shortly after lunch, the sky turns dark. Strong winds begin to blow lightning and thunder. Hysterical people begin to run into town telling you the king's armies have come out and they're slaughtering everybody without exception. Flee for the castle. And so you grab your wife and you grab your two little kids and you begin to run for the castle wall. And as you approach there, there's this gigantic people just pressing in towards the narrow gate. Now, There's four instances that people won't enter in. And this mob is like all of those who waited in the days of Noah. You remember what happened. Noah preaches to them, tells them to enter in for 120 years. They scoff at him. And then what happens? Then what happens is there is this. Very scary day when God closes the door of the ark. And then all the people, what? Then they all want to enter in, don't they? They all want to enter in when it is too late. And then they are all judged. And so what four instances 
is the door to heaven shut when we can't enter in one after death. There is no repentance from sin. If you wait until after you die and then decide, you know, I'm going to give my life to Christ. It's too late. Doors shut. Secondly, after rejecting the truth too many times, the scriptures say there is a point. We don't know when that point is when it's beyond the hope of entering in. You can't get in after a certain point. It is impossible. The author of Hebrews speaks of those for whom it is impossible to renew again to repentance. In chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, he says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. No longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no way to get your sins atoned for. No. Peter talks about it in Second Peter chapter 2 when he says, Listen, if you have gained a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've begun to walk in the Lord, and you begin to know the truth, and you have escaped the defilements of the world, and after knowing the truth, knowing the gospel, knowing God's people, hanging around the church, you have turned again back to a sin of rebellion against God, it's over. The last state for you has become worse than the first. Well, what is the first state? You're an unbeliever without knowledge on your way to hell. What is the last state? You're an unbeliever with knowledge on your way to hell without any hope of being saved. A scary thought that for some, the door gets welded shut. We don't know who they are. But we know it's true for some because God's word tells us. Third, the door is shut to those who wish to enter on their own apart from God's grace. If you think you can be good enough to get in, you think your works, your philanthropy, your giving, your morality will get you into the kingdom of heaven, you are wrong. For you only enter by God's grace. And four, and finally... If you wait till after the second coming, the door will be shut. If you wait until the skies are rent and the sign of the son of man appears like lightning from the east and the west when he sends forth his angels and you think, "Uh oh, I better run for the gate of the castle. It's closed. Don't even bother. And so there you are outside the castle walls crying out, let us in, let us in. We're your subjects. And the king comes out on the little parapet on top of the battlements. And he looks down, look at the middle of verse 25. And this is what he says. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. You do not know where we are from. Of course you do. You're the all-knowing king. You know everything. I, my family, we just live in the village over the hill. What do you mean you don't know where we're from? We want to come in. But you're blind. You don't understand what he's even saying. Of course he knows you exist. Of course he knows the town you live in. But what he's saying is you don't have a personal relationship with me. You've never been reconciled to me through faith. You don't have my forgiveness. You don't have atonement for your sins. 
You have violated my law. I have posted my law. I know you've broken my law. You know you've broken my law. I have offered to be reconciled to you, to forgive you. If you will enter in and you will not enter in, that means you're still an enemy. I don't know where you are from. It's like those in Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name performed many miracles? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They know about Jesus. They call Jesus Lord. They're around Jesus's people. They're even claiming to do miraculous deeds in Jesus's name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The phrase, I never knew you, means I never had a personal relationship with you. You were never reconciled to me. And it's equivalent to the words that the king utters from the battlements of the castle here. I do not know where you are from. But you and the multitude outside are desperate. You've got to get in. Judgment is coming and you know it. So then you begin to argue with the king. And this leads us to our second point, an argument you will not be able to use before God. Look at verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And it is true. When Jesus is speaking to the Jews who are standing before him, many did eat and drink in his presence. Many probably were among those who ate and were filled on the hillsides when he fed the 5,000 and the 3,000. Some of them probably had him in his, in their houses and they heard him teach in their synagogues or in their streets and they were among the masses who crowded around to hear him and watch him perform miracles and hear him preach the gospel. But here is their error. They thought that being in proximity to Jesus was sufficient for them to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is a mistake that many in the church today will make. They will think that because they are around God's people, because they have a knowledge of the church, a knowledge of the scriptures, a knowledge of Christ, because they went to Awana, because they memorized scripture, because they have the gospel down forwards and backwards. Therefore, they get to enter in. But that is like standing outside the castle and saying, there is the door. There is the castle. This is what we need to do to escape And then to stand outside. Each person must individually come through the narrow door. You know, I can read all about George Washington and Genghis Khan or Julius Caesar, but that doesn't mean I know them personally. I could go and visit where they lived. It doesn't mean I know them personally. Just because you have all the knowledge of how to enter in and who Jesus is and what he did and the people of God and that experienced the church of God, it doesn't mean you enter in. You must enter in. Knowledge of how to enter in alone will not save you. And if you appeal to knowing about Jesus and his teachings, look at verse 27 and he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me all Ye evil doers. 
If you do not enter in through the narrow door, Jesus doesn't see you as just somebody outside, but an evildoer. It will surely be a shock to those religious professing Christians who don't know Christ when after having going to church all their life and sacrificially giving and teaching in Sunday school and having great knowledge of the gospel end up in hell. That is a scary thought. That Jesus would describe their works as evil doings. I mean, the Jews he's speaking to, these, these aren't, you know, a bunch of, you know, this isn't the axe murderer club. This is a bunch of good people. Fine, upstanding Jews who are trying to submit to Rome and obey God and sacrifice in the temple and go to synagogue. I mean, these people are doing what is right. There's a widespread ignorance and I suppose even a denial that if you profess to know Christ... Everything you do is right because you do know Christ, but that's not the case. And most people just won't bring themselves to admit that everything a person does, apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the grace of God, apart from the instructions in the Word of God for the glory of God, is all sin. Even if somebody does the same thing somebody else does, To them, it may be sin, and to the other person, it may give glory to God. Why? Because if this person's not saved, and this person is saved, this deed accounts for sin, this one does not. Why? Because this person is reconciled to God. This person has the Holy Spirit. This person is doing things for the glory of God. This one does not. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I just want to show you this. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. Notice what is said here, Romans 8, verses 5 through 9. Of course, Paul has just said in verse 1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says this in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit The things of the spirit. So he's contrasting those who don't know Christ with those who do. Those who walk in the flesh and those who walk in the spirit. Now notice what he says. The things of the spirit for the mindset in the flesh, verse 6, is death. But the mindset in the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset in the flesh is, notice this, hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. Notice very closely here. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He is hostile to him. He can obey him and never does. That's what he's saying. If you don't know Christ... You can't do anything to please God. All good deeds account for nothing unless first you're reconciled to the king. And here we learn a truth that many forget or deny or ignorant of that if you don't do things by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, it accounts for nothing, though the world may say, well, it's a very good person, a very self-sacrificing person to God. You're an evildoer until you come to Christ, until you enter into that narrow door. 
or what is left for them. The king commands them to depart. Look at verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These words describe the misery of judgment. In verse 28, Jesus says, when the king says, depart from me, evildoers, he says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, this is not weeping for joy. This is the weeping when you lose somebody, the weeping when your child dies, the weeping when there is so much pain and misery and agony that you just cry and you see doom is coming and you can't escape. And so you just cry. Gnashing of teeth describes kind of a mixture of misery and anger, like an animal that is caught in a trap and its paws in the trap and it knows that it's going to die. It's just snarling. It's just angry because it cannot escape. Of course, weeping and gnashing of teeth is a synonym for hell. Jesus uses it in six other places in the Gospels, all in the Gospel of Matthew. For instance, in Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42, we read, The Son of Man will send forth his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says the same thing in Matthew chapter 13, verse 50. And in Matthew 22, verse 13 and 25, 30, he uses this phrase along with people being cast into outer darkness, another synonym for hell. In Matthew twenty four fifty one, the evil slave who didn't do his master's will, who procrastinated, who presumed his master wouldn't be coming back for a long time and who was caught off guard, that slave is cut in pieces, assigned a place with the hypocrites where there is weeping and gnashing and teeth. Again, another synonym for hell. So Jesus is telling us here that if we don't enter in now into that narrow gate, we may get caught off guard. And as we put off our salvation, we may discover that when we finally want to enter, the door is shut. Third and finally, to add misery to pain, Jesus says, yes, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And now he gives a reason, which to you may think, oh, This isn't bad, but to Jews, it's terrible. He says, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, this would have just been a horrific thought. Abraham, they're children of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, man, they're our guys. The prophets, they're our heroes. And so Jesus is saying, you know, all of your heroes that you claim, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, the ones that you claim to follow, the ones you claim to believe, the ones that you idolize. Picture yourself outside the gate, which is where you are. You're going to be seeing those people entering into the kingdom and you yourselves are going to be cast out. Many professing Christians will have the same experience. They will see themselves as upright, moral citizens. They will claim to believe in the right things, be followers of Jesus Christ. I follow Paul. I love Peter. I love the apostles. I love Abraham. I love Moses. I love the prophets. And to have them as your heroes and yet to see them entering and you being cast out is a terror. 
to, to hear Jesus say, depart from me, you evildoers, I don't know where you're from, would be terrifying when you aligned yourself and thought you had aligned yourself with the very people who are entering in when you're cast out. And then we come to the third thing, which is a promise that should comfort you, thankfully. I was thinking, man, this text is heavy. But there is a little bit of hope at the end. Look at verse 29. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. That they here is referring to those few who did not delay, who entered into the narrow door. Who agonized and made it. And Jesus says here that among them, they will come from the east, west, north, and south. In other words, they'll come from all the nations of the world. Now, this must have really been a mind blower to these Jews who were taught that the Israelites get in. No one else gets in. You've got to be of Abraham or you don't get in. Now Jesus is saying, not only are you going to you outside the door, you're going to be standing out there when you see all your heroes enter in. And not only that, you're going to see a bunch of Gentiles enter in while you are cast out. Ah, it would have been heartbreaking to think that here we have salvation is first to the Jews and we have the promises. We have the covenants. We have the prophets. We have the Messiah and we're outside and those Gentile dogs are entering in. Well, you wouldn't enter in. You had the opportunity. You waited too long. But this is good news for you and me. For most of us here are Gentiles, though a few are Jews who have entered in. Most of us have not. And to think that God, by his grace and mercy, has opened the door not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And it's been open to us for over 2,000 years. And Jesus is saying, enter in. And yet most people will not. They will not enter in. And Jesus says, behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. There's a complete reversal of things. Sin, Satan, demons, evil men of this world are all going to be put down. The righteous who are persecuted are going to be exalted. There are going to be a huge economic reversal. Many in this world who are poor, who are persecuted, will be exalted to great riches and those who are rich in this world, many of them will be put down to utter poverty. The proud will be totally humbled and the humble will be totally exalted. Many of the Jews who thought they were entering in will not enter in and many of the Gentiles will be saved instead. Now, don't miss the heart of this text. The whole thing here is a warning. But it's a warning for a good purpose. Jesus says all these things, warns with all of these things because of this. He wants each of us to think about where we're standing. Are we standing outside the gate? Or have you entered in through faith in Christ? Which one are you? What have you done? I think there's probably... A number of people here this morning, I'm sure there always is, people who don't know Christ, who haven't entered in. 
You may be familiar with the church. You may be familiar with a lot of different things. You may have a lot of knowledge of Jesus and the Bible and things that are surrounding Christianity. But that knowledge doesn't get you to enter in. Just your proximity to Christians doesn't save you. Your knowledge alone won't save you. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You must enter in through. You must agonize today. It is only today that Jesus offers this to you. There is never an offer of salvation to you tomorrow. It is only today because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. The door may be shut for you tomorrow. I was thinking about how there are those who, after hardening their hearts to the truth, have the door shut to them. And I always wonder when I preach, and I'm preaching this, if there's somebody here who that morning will have the truth shut to them forevermore. And God will never again draw them, convict them, appeal to them again, and they will be excluded permanently from the kingdom of God. Because they have rejected the truth so many times. I don't know who that is, but I hope it's not anybody here. Jesus will be reconciled with you. The door is open today. He says, come to me, all you who are weak and loving. I will give you rest. Enter into the the joy of my kingdom today. You can have it. Because he died for you, because he rose for your justification, and he will do it if you will agonize to get in there through faith and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace, which calls us, commands us to repent and believe in Jesus, to enter into the narrow way. You have done everything that is necessary for us to escape the wrath to come when your armies will go forth and gather from the earth all the evildoers for judgment. Yet, Father, we can enter in through now. The door is still open. It is narrow, but there it is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is standing, who is begging and pleading and commanding that we enter in. And, Father, if there is somebody here who doesn't know you, somebody here who has not given their life to you, oh, Father, help them to believe. May they cry out to you. May they say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to keep striving until I know I have entered in. Save them from their sins. Save them from the consequences of their sins. Help them to be broken, to strive, to enter in so that they might be saved. Father, we just ask that you would do this. And for the rest of us, may we leave here rejoicing for your grace, which has enabled us to enter in. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.